Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. everyone and welcome to another episode of really true fiction my name is david parker and my name is luke mason and we have a very special guest for this episode one of my closest friends a man who i've lived with for more than five years in the same house uh, at one point we shared dorm rooms we've shared first apartments we've shared couches in friends basements on campaigns uh josiah martinowski and josiah do you oh, want to hi. introduce uh, what book we're going to be doing uh, for this podcast? Uh, today we're going to be talking about Dune, one of my favorite books, and I know it's one of David's favorite books too. And, oh, for uh, sure. Yeah, for sure. Really yeah. stoked to be be on the podcast today, guys. Uh, my question to you, Josiah, is what's your favorite way to ride a worm? <laughs> you know, at, I think it's you know within the uh, shock waves of a nuke taking out a shield wall. You know, <laughs> yes. Following a spike trance. It's when you take you you go from like leading a small rebellion on one planet to being emperor of the universe in a week. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're saying you like to do it in a way that totally transcends the expectations of your foe and thus making you the truly better in the altercation? Yeah, exactly. Basically it needs to be a nineteen me- eighties metal album cover, right? <laughs> <laughs> So true, so true. Josiah well, and the Riding Worms. And the, no, Josiah and the Worm Riders. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's a the good one. Fidakin. Before we start, I just want to say a big thank you, Josiah, for coming on the podcast. Um, this has been a long time coming. I know David talked about having you as a guest like a year ago. Yeah. Like right when true. we were a brand new podcast. And then. I asked him what book you would want to do, and he said Dune. And so we've expanded a little bit out. You're our third guest uh, that we've ever had, but um, the, the first two have been kind of my friends or like people that David met through me. And so this is the first one of a guest of someone I've met through David. And um, that's just really special to me, actually. Like, even though we met before Really True Fiction, you you seem to me like you, you're a, maybe the perfect example of something or someone I'm trying to... Mm, enlarge in this podcast space which is like getting to know more people through books we love movies we love tv shows we love ideas we love and uh yeah you're like the perfect instantiation of that for me so i'm really grateful you're on thanks for taking the time man well it's an absolute pleasure to hop on i i've been a big fan of the podcast since you guys started and there's been so many really good episodes and i'm sure Part of my interest is obviously just having that shared kind of got friendship with David for many years. And so obviously there's a lot of these things that we've discovered together, like Blade Runner, for example, and, and Dune is definitely something that early on in our friendship, we both kind of discovered we loved it. And so I, I, I'm really excited to be, yeah, to get to talk about this with you guys and part, and also just 
participate with the uh, podcast or be part of the discussion. So Yeah, no. Okay, so like rolling into it, why don't you give us a plot rundown? Okay. Well, this was awesome because I was listening to the audiobook to kind of finish it up with Palm, my wife, in the car, in our car ride. We were picking up a puppy today, and so we had a long drive, and so I, I wanted to explain it to her before I turned on the audiobook mid, you know, near the end of the book. <laughs> right. And so right. basically... So Dune. So Dune is set, it's a science fiction book by uh, Frank Herbert. He wrote it in the 60s. It's set thousands and thousands of years in the future, um, a future where mankind has colonized the stars. You know, there's human beings in thousands and thousands of worlds, probably more than they're able to even really know of. And it's a it's a kind of feudal, feudal kind of uh, political system. So there's feudal lords, they have an empire, but it's more kind of like a, it's, it kind of resembles something similar to like the Holy Roman Empire. Like, it's not necessarily a very unified polity. There's lots of factions and groups, but they have an emperor. And then there's all these uh, royal houses or great houses and minor houses. And the great houses rule certain planets. And another really kind of interesting thing about this this uh, this setting is that they don't use uh, computers. They don't have any artificial intelligence. And and so like, there's a lot of lore. Like we could spend out like we could spend hours tonight yeah, just talking yeah, we about the lore. <laughs> exactly. This this is a world that's been developed on a Tolkien esque level. Like, yeah, that's what I was. That's what you I can build the, This is yeah. this the re- reason I love this book, and I think you and I you've said this before, Josiah. Is it basically makes you feel like you have fully immersed yourself in a rich universe? This is Star Wars esque. Yeah, and aren't there six yeah. books? In the total series? Yes. yes, it goes much further than this first book. We're only doing the first book uh, today. Yeah, yeah. So anyways, I'll, I'll try not to go too deep into the lore, but it is like this stuff is important for the story. So there's no computers, so they have, they, they have to use human abilities. So they've developed human abilities, and there's different kinds of human beings that have certain kinds of almost like superpowers. So for example, to get around in space, they have the technology to hold space, but it very risky. They could slam their ships through stars or whatever. And so they need to be able to, like, they can't rely on computers to do all the computational tasks. So they've developed human beings who are able to calculate the jumps. And so the people who do that are the guild. And then there is a, um, and then there's Mentats. So they're, yeah, the basically they've relied on human evolution through detailed breeding programs by this race of, basically space witches <laughs> uh right so basically this universe is ruled by this kind of elite group of of aristocracy who are in the in the words of frank herbert the question of whether they're good at ruling is whether they've learned the task of ruling well like they're trained in being leaders their whole lives right yeah. and then we've got this mutated form of human that calculates star jumps and then we've got these space witches. Like, it sounds <laughs> totally punk in a sense, but awesome, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and like, the kind of the thing, the thread that holds all of these different sorts of political entities within their society together is this substance called spice. So it's, it's at first, at a glance, it's a narcotic. Like, it is addictive, but it's actually, it, first of all, it enhances human life so people can live far longer than they normally would because they have spice. They're also totally dependent on it. Once they have a spice addiction, they'll die without it. But then it also does these things like it enhances human abilities. So it allows 
these guilds masters to guide their ships. It allows the uh, space witches or those Benny Gesserit as they're called in the book. <laughs> I'm just trying to make it like uh, accessible for people who didn't read the whole thing. But yeah, that won't be the last pseudo Star Wars influence that I've noticed in this. They sift through thousands of years of human experience. It's this incredibly precious substance. It's kind of like, you know, if we were going to use kind of a modern political equivalent, it's like oil, you know, like their entire system of like their entire system relies on it. And so it's only found on one planet, which is the setting of the book, which is Arrakis, also known as Dune, which is this desert planet. There's no water on it. It's very hostile to even life there. And there's, you know, the, uh, the very kind of iconic aspect of this book is this giant, these giant worms that live in it, that they dwell under the sand and they'll gobble entire, you know, entire ships or, you know, groups of people that are kind of wandering along the, the sands. And so as you kind of dig deeper in the book, you realize the, the worms and the spice are very interlinked. But for the people to be able to get the spice, they have to deal with the worms and there's a, a lot of other kind of possible aspects obviously there being almost no water on this planet is a, a major kind of challenge and so so that's kind of the setting the book starts begins with this royal with this great house the atreides and uh there's you know the atreides there's duke leto and he's his benny jesuit or space witch wife well, concubine, I guess she's not his wife officially. Um, Jessica, <laughs> but he still loves her. But he still loves her a lot, and they have they have a very deep and emotionally enriching relationship. <laughs> exactly. And then their son and his heir, uh, Paul Atreides. And so the way I was explaining to Palm, and I that's why I wanted to spend all this time talking about all these different groups of like subgroups of people, like the Mentats and the Benny Jesuit and stuff. Is basically Paul Atreides, like everybody in the. Um, Atreides retinue like loves Paul Atreides and they all kind of like pour themselves into training him so like um, the Duke's fine, best fighters teach Paul how to be this like super fighter and he's a kid. The Mentat teaches Paul how to be a Mentat his dad Paul or Leto teaches Paul how to lead and how to be a man. His mom who's a Benny Gesserit teaches him all these like cool Benny Gesserit superpowers like being able to control like uh, order commands and help telling people what to do and actually go down to the atomic level and deal with poisons that come into your blood so that you can't be... Like, these are highly yeah. evolved beings. Like, as far as who is the most evolved beings in the Dune universe, it's the Bene Gesserit. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so Paul's just this, this superhuman being in the making. And so the Atreides take over Arrakis, or given Arrakis, rather, by the Emperor... Which we later find out is there's an entire kind of like plot, which is like full of subterfuge. I, I, want, I want you to remember that subterfuge. That's a word I really want to go into on this episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Faints within faints, faints within, within faints. faints. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the Atreides rival, the Lannisters, are the ones who actually con controlled Dune previously. You said Lannister. You mean Harkonnen? Sorry, I said Lannister. Oh, you got to keep that in, though, because that is another thing we're going to bring up later. Yeah, 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 exactly. I'm afraid I don't know what you mean, Josiah. <laughs> For any Game of Thrones fans, this is that's a helpful uh, comparison. <laughs> um, yeah, so the Harkonnens, who were the masters of Dune, are leaving Dune, and we later find out that the Harkonnens are working with the Emperor to take out the Atreides. So the Atreides, but the, the crazy thing is the Atreides actually know that this is all a trap, but they're going in anyways because they see it as an opportunity.
opportunity to best both the Emperor and the Harkonnen. They're, they're mortal enemies. Yeah, Duke Leto is kind of this badass, like, basically, I'm going to go in, and you know what, I'm probably not going to come out alive, but for glory. He's like, for all of those fans of internet memory, he's Leroy Jenkinsing this. <laughs> yeah, well, well, exactly. let's, be, tr- exactly. let's be true, too, and because Spice. Right, and there's <laughs> right. a lot of money here. The Spice must flow, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Okay, so so they Leroy Jenkins their way in there. Yes, and then, as we kind of, as we expect, you know, like, so this great, this first part of the novel is great because it really introduces us to Dune. And so we really kind of get to, like, I kind of like to think of Dune as almost like a Russian doll. Like, mm. you keep pulling it apart and there's more and good more imagery. and there's more Ooh. inside. And there's Ooh, that's good, yeah. Secrets that they're unraveling in the planet. Um, there's a few assassination attempts, like they try to kill Paul because Paul is so well-trained. Not only does he save himself, but he saves one of the Fremen housekeepers. So, like, quickly you kind of get a sense that the Atreides are very different than the Harkonnens, and they actually value their subjects, and they that's that sort of virtue earns loyalty and love from people. In contrast to the Harkonnens, who are, I would almost call them Machiavellians, but they're not even, like, good Machiavellians, because Machiavelli said, don't be hated. If people hate you, yeah, they'll turn on you. And that's exactly what happens to the Harkonnens, like, they torque up that cruelty so hard that people just hate them. Like, I think we'll get into it a bit later, but something I noticed is that that Baron was really, like the Baron Harkonnen, he was very, he was competent and he was smart, but he just couldn't let his arrogance not show. Like, he just couldn't let his superiority make him vulnerable in very subtle but very profound ways, which is interesting as a motif I found in this book. Like he, he, he let, he kept the door open just a little bit to his Achilles heel through his arrogance, overconfidence and certainty that he was right about everything. Oh, and, and he, he never really believed that he wasn't ahead of everyone. Yeah, exactly. But that was why he didn't like the Benny Jesuit, Jesuit, right? Mm -hmm. How do you pronounce that? Just for the listeners. And Benny Jesuit. Benny Jesuit. Benny Jesuit. Okay. Benny Jesuit. Yeah. Uh, so the, the Benny Jesuit. Uh, I. I will get into it later. I think they're the coolest thing about this mm. this whole uh, series. But what do you think about what happens to Paul and his journey, Josiah? Well, I think you know what. I think a lot of people when they first read or encounter Dune, they think Paul's the hero, and I guess he is. He is the protagonist. But they think he's almost this kind of like, a lot of people kind of buy into that sort of like that he's this messianic figure. And, and I think the David Lynch movie doesn't help because like in the David Lynch movie, it kind of makes it out like he does actually have all these superpowers that aren't even explained by the rules in the universe. And it, in a lot of ways, I, I'd argue that Paul's actually an incredibly tragic figure because he has all this latent abilities, but he almost like he he's battles like kind of buying into his own mythos, which we... You know, not to go too deep into it, but the Benny Jesuit actually plant all these kind of myths, mess, messiah myths, into the people of the universe and, and including the planet Arrakis. So, the, yeah, so basically, like, kind of, for anybody who hasn't read this book... You should. It's very yeah. complicated. Yeah, you're going to need to read it to really understand the conversation we're about to get about Just, to like, have. Josiah, Josiah, even that... Plot rundown, I'm just thinking, like, I just read this book, and I didn't even really think of all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> like oh. this, this book is oh, so complicated. 
this, this is, is such... like my third or fourth time reading through it and i i was like noticing a ton of things that i didn't notice before and this was one of those things that i picked up on was just kind of how tragic in some ways paul is because mm. so paul you know to summarize it quickly the atreides are taken out by the harkonnen and the emperor they kill the duke they kill a lot of their soldiers paul and his mother jessica run away into the desert. One of their best fighters, Duncan Idaho, is killed. A few of the other lieutenants go off and, you know, one becomes, is captured by the Harkonnens, another is, becomes a vagabond. So, like, House Atreides is almost kind of wiped out. And so, but Paul and Jessica find, the Fremen find them, and they, they become Fremen in a lot of ways. And that's, and then, like, what I was talking about a few minutes ago about that mythos, because those that mythos was planted, Paul and Jessica fulfill these prophecies that the Fremen have. Mm -hmm. And Fremen being, I think, just, I don't know if we pointed out, Fremen are the indigenous people of Arrakis who are so, they're they're so underestimated by the Harkonnens, which is exactly why they're able to beat the Harkonnens, it seems to me. And then Paul kind of becomes their leader through this mythos planted through these people, the Fremen, who are so unbelievably... Amazing. They're just an amazing uh, race well, talk, of people. Talk about people who take... Dune is ahead of its time in so many ways. It's ahead of its time environmentally. It's ahead of its time about religion. It's, it's mm. ahead of its time about uh, intrigue. Like, the level of intrigue that happens in this book is is uh, beyond uh, Game of Thrones, for sure. I think yeah. it's tighter. I think it's tighter mm. and it makes more sense and but it's there are more twists and turns. Like at the end <laughs> at the end Paul Atreides just becoming emperor of the universe is such a what I did not see that coming that did, that was no and just but it all makes logical sense how he No, got no, there. no. I knew he was Bran Stark aka the Raven the whole time. <laughs> Right? It's got all the motifs are Dune. It's Dune is the foundation yeah. upon which uh, upon which Game of Thrones was built. Mm. I would argue even like Star Wars rips off a lot of Dune too. Like Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> there are some Star Wars lovers in this house, Josiah, so we'll say Star Wars pays Star Wars pays homage to Dune. <laughs> yes, yes. So like there's like these magical like wizard witches people that yep. are able to like tell people what to do yeah. and like have the martial arts uh so okay I, this was gonna happen eventually so we might as well do it now yeah. recently we did foundation on the podcast and i found out two huge things from star wars comes from foundation because the uh capital city in foundation trantor is a as a planet-wide city so there's coruscant for you and then also one of the um, uh, one of the kind of countries i guess or nations that they come up against the foundation comes up against is called corellia which is the home planet of han solo <laughs> yes. so there's two, but then here there's spice well han solo yeah. was a spice runner <laughs> Uh, there's True. smugglers. Han Solo was a smuggler. Wait a second. I didn't know Han uh, Solo was a spice runner. Oh yeah. my God. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, and there's ta- sand people. That may be the best thing that's ever happened. <laughs> you maybe, maybe you've heard of this little planet Tatooine, yeah. a <laughs> desert planet with no water, which of course they're, um, Luke Skywalker and Owen's, uh, Owen, Uncle Owen is a water farmer, like <laughs> water vapor, you know, like, uh, oh, man. and I, yeah. I don't know. There was one other one that I can't even... Uh, yeah, so it's just like okay, George Lucas loved uh, Foundation and Dune clearly, and as For a sure. as a you know, I just love finding out these awesome little homages and like connecting the dots of culture in this way. You know, I, I think it's awesome. 
That was oh, that may be one of the greatest things that ever has happened on this podcast, guys. That was just Luke laying down a riff. <laughs> he just blew your mind. <laughs> I didn't even well, think of any of that. One of the first lines in I'm Star Wars. I'm just thinking about all of the, the philosophic and <laughs> <laughs> one of the um one of the first lines in Star Wars that C three PO says is we'll be we'll be sent to the spice mines of Kessel. The spice money. <laughs> you know, it's like awesome. Just awesome. So sorry, Josiah, but I, I felt like that had to that had to come out organically at some point. That's good. I yeah. I mean that's exact like that's exactly it. Like I think it's so cool all the sorts of cultural references that like that we didn't realize like that if you didn't read Dune that you didn't realize we're referring to Dune. But yeah, I guess I just wanted to finish that one thing about Paul being, a, I, ju- I just think I would argue that he is a tragic character in a lot of ways because he unites all the Fremen behind him and he doesn't want, like he's, because his latent abilities allow him to kind of see the future or the future possibilities, because it's not in this world as if the future is determined before, like, but he's able to kind of, like the, uh, the guildsmen, see the path that humanity's heading towards. And so he realizes that he's sparking events that could lead into kind of great calamity and he doesn't want it he doesn't want it to go that direction but because he unites the fremen takes over and kind of spoilers for the future books the fremen go on this like great crusade across the galaxy and kill billions and the trillions jihad. of people exactly wow. so it's <laughs> like he has no power to actually yeah, stop yeah. the jihad so anyway that's 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 what i'll say as far as like uh, paul being a bit of a tragic character so so like, sorry i just want to make sure i i get it so you think he's a tragic character because he's foisted into these scenarios that he feels like he has no choice but to take on these roles? Well, I think it's that he has all this power, but he's not actually able to stop the jihad from happening. The jihad mm. happens regardless. Well, that's where the the, yeah. the, the the following books become actually like some of my favorite literature ever. Mm. I'd say Dune is the best world-building book. It's, be- it's way tighter than Tolkien. It's... I'd say it's more shocking than Game of Thrones and it's more fulfilling than what would be a good, another great, I think it's more fulfilling than Wheel of Time. It is just a tight, the first book is so tight and so beautiful all by itself that it's a masterpiece, right? But like Dune Messiah is probably my favorite book in the series for sure. But Dune Messiah is like an appendix on Dune, right? Without Mm. the book Dune, you couldn't have Dune Messiah. But I think I noticed exactly the same thing, Josiah, on this read-through. This idea of how he's wrestling, Paul is wrestling with the fact that he can kind of see the future. And he doesn't know whether he's living in the future or the present or the past. He, he feels lo- literally lost in time. Just kind of like he's floating down this river of inevitability. He can kind of steer the river, but you never get the sense that he controls the river. right? Mm. It's just that he's in it and he's kind of aware of it. Aware of it. And I feel like it's such a <laughs> such a great reflection on the 60s. Okay. Right? It was like the war was over. We're in the Cold War. We know the war is happening. Wow, which war? Well, that would be the... Well, <laughs> yeah. There were a lot of wars in that time, right? Yeah, there was another war happening. Yeah, Vietnam, <laughs> right? Like, Which is really, I just consider yeah. part of the Cold War because it was really just a skirmish between communism and America. Okay, I mean, there were a lot of not cold things that happened in Vietnam. <laughs> true, true. It was a hot war in Vietnam. Fair <laughs> yes. enough. Fair enough. 
My point, my point is that the way he talks about war and intrigue and revenge and dynasties, it's so of that time period where humanity mm. was like, we're going to the moon and then they got there. It's such a, in a sense, a bright vision of the future where humanity has, we're not worried about human extinction. We're on a million planets, right? Political intrigue right. becomes a lot more interesting if you're not worried about the continued existence of your species, mm. right? Yeah, interesting. I think. Yeah. And that's a way more yeah. exciting thing to think about, I think. Than, and that's what he's doing is I think it's a commentary on the petty wars we fight today oh. as, a, as, a, as a humans. Interesting. When really that we should be focusing. And that is what he ends up, I think, being the message of Dune in the long run. Wouldn't you agree, Josiah? Yeah. Like that, that is what the God Emperor does, right? What does he do? He creates freedom. Yeah. Well, I think it's this idea too that like, yeah, all those petty, that petty infighting and stuff, it's like humanity can kind of find these plateaus and it leads to kind of stagnation. And so like both Paul and then his son later in the other books and other characters in Dune, they're kind of like these catalysts mm. to bring humanity out of stagnation and into kind of like change. And like, and both like, both Paul and Jessica and Dune, like there's a lot of these kind of key moments where they take. And even and Leto too, like even Leto bringing his family to Dune, and then Jessica and Paul in different ways, like they take gambles and they're they're kind of brought out of their comfort zone, and it kind of it leads to this kind of next stage of like metamorphosis. And um, the old empire, like I remember one line particularly really really stuck to me, where Leto was talking about the old families and like how they were all kind of like. I don't know. Like I forget what it was, but basically that the old families, like their their bloodlines, were kind of becoming like stagnant or something like that. Like it kind of reminded me almost like of the, you know, throughout human history, whether it was the Romans or the Chinese empires or whatever. Like you had this kind of like cycles of you, these empires would form, and then outsiders would come in and invade, and then they would become the new empire, and then later on, like they would, you know, things would kind of, you know, internal problems mm. would form, and then another wave of invaders would come, and so that's kind of what happens with the Fremen, right? Like, they're the outsiders, and then at the end of the book, they, you know, with their leader, Paul, they're... Like the Mongols, kind of, or, yeah, or... There's exactly. so many examples in history of, like, people who are harder, more focused, more dedicated, united by a religion, let's call yeah. it, just spreading out across the world because it's like, oh, we have certitude. You know, I actually... That's really interesting, Josiah, and it, it made me... It makes me want to make a connection and then a question that comes out of that connection because as you were explaining it... It actually reminded me a little bit of how, in a literary sense, this reminds me a lot of John Steinbeck's style of writing. Mm. When we talked about East of Eden, we talked about how Steinbeck is kind of the master of going macro, micro. Like he has these like paragraph, um, wide swath observations about humanity, history, geography, like very, very macro. And then we get into like a very nitty gritty family based drama story, which is very micro. So he's, he's so good at these. And then when you're talking about that, it makes me think of Dune. Like, yes, Dune has this massive world. It has these massive sociological and political and historical and religious overtones and undertones, both. They're both overt and subtle, I think, in, in the book. And yet it is a story about, you know, a teenage boy and his mom and their friends and the trauma they go through and the betrayal. So, like, there's these very intimate, local, human emotions of my dad has been betrayed and killed. 
my friends are gone. It's only me and my mom. The same thing with Jessica. She's lost her lover and her the father of her child, and it's just her and him now. And like, there's all of these relationship types and then the mystery but all of this happening in this very clear backdrop of oh my gosh this world is so huge and there's so much more going on that paul specifically paul jessica a little bit is having to interact with throughout the book where it's interesting it's like when you get into paul's head he wants to grieve for his dad he kind of can't but he kind of wants to he's really conflicted about how he feels about grief even for his dad but he's just plowing forward Where, he's like but i gotta we still keep have going all of this macro stuff happening so i guess the question is do you see this book as a macro book or a human micro book or a bit of both i think i feel thinking about even just expressing it now, I feel it's both. Like, I feel like it's, there's something so beautiful about how it's kind of intertwined in both those ways. And even though, as I'm sure both of you know, I don't believe in a supernatural dimension. It's that kind of thing, that intertwining of different things that makes me feel spiritual, right. I would say. Oh, and like, like I'm not that. squeamish yeah. of using that word because I don't think there's a better word in the language no. for how I feel. Like this book makes me feel spiritual, spiritual and transcendent Yes, because of... And maybe this is part of the tragedy you're talking about, Josiah, with Paul, is that he is both <laughs> like on the run, leading an indigenous tribe to try and not revenge exactly, but also not exactly not revenge for his dad, but also trying to make the world better at the same time. Like he's got these grand... Like make the world livable. Yeah, he's got these grand themes and aspirations, but also this pain in the individual and and quietness of his own heart. And and I think that is what makes him so interesting. And I would say the same for Jessica too. Actually, maybe not as much in the book, but her. So anyway, that's a lot. What do you think about all that? Uh, no, I I hadn't thought about it that way. But I think you're right. It's very well balanced between the micro and the macro. And like, we care about the micro, but the micro shows us the macro. Like, it's a great way. It'd be like he's not writing a Silmarillion. Like, it's not a a very kind of top down. It's not. It's not writing a history book about a world he created. It's a story that tells us the history. Okay, so I wanted to ask you guys: What do you guys think about like the perspective? Like I, so like I was telling Palm, I was kind of explaining it. So like, a lot of books are first person, and you have one protagonist, and it follows that one protagonist, and then other books are maybe not like third person the entire way, and then maybe other books like George R. R. Martin, the way he writes. It'll, there'll be multiple point of view characters, but the, he'll separate it by chapters. And like what Frank Herbert does in like every chapter is like, boom, 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 you're switching around pe- what people are saying and going into different people's heads. And it's so like, <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's, so, like, it's not, it's so crazy. Like it's, it's, a, it's a mind. Well, that's like, very game of yeah. Thrones esque as far as the show goes. I never read any of the game of Thrones books, but yeah, the writing is very different for each chapter's one per, per, point of view. And it just, that's it. Right. I would argue that the Game of Thrones TV show is more like Dune when you're reading it because you are you feel like you're constantly popping into people's heads mm-hmm. and yeah. in and out of their perspectives, right? And I would say on top of that point, Josiah, I noticed how almost every chapter, I think every chapter of this book is started with either like a letter oh. or a poem. Oh, it's by my, this, it's my um, oh, I love it. Her name like Irulan. I don't know how to pronounce her name, but anyway, there's like a. A reflection, right? Like it's taken from. It's like a little again, meditation, yeah, or like oh. a, or like a, or a, or a history snippet that is going to lead into that chapter in some way, either narratively or thematically. And that reminded me of Foundation, yes, because in Foundation, so I, I, I imagine Frank Herbert read Asimov, yeah, well, <laughs> right? he would have, yeah, yeah, because yeah. 
in foundation at the beginning or end, I can't remember of every chapter, there's like an encyclopedic takeout of whatever we're learning about in that chapter or before, right? So we're getting the narrative in the book with exposition at the beginning or end of the chapter. And I felt like similar to that in this. So we get, we get exposition and a plethora of perspective. Yeah, yeah you're right. It's and, just and, really okay, fascinating. So I, I agree. I think he got it from Asimov, but I think he perfects it because it's way cooler to have these profound, wise statements than these like en- encyclopedic yeah right like mm-hmm. i yeah. love the quotes are so good it's like oh yeah this is a benny Gesserit proverb right and it's just like that proverb is like profound and and life-giving <laughs> like i agree with it I well there's and there's so much like it packs a punch right like even the names like zen suni like it tells a story it's like what what happened like there's like familiarity or like the orange catholic bible or whatever like there's these words that have kind of familiarity in our modern times. And so it makes you really wonder like what happened? How did these, like, how did these very different religions? Yeah. This is a a world that once it's created, you want to know more about it. When you finish reading Dune, you want more of the Dune universe. This is a book that is specially crafted to make you want more. Mm -hmm. And yet when I read it, I'm like, this is profound philosophy, profound plot, profound. And I'm like, I think Frank Herbert, and this is going to be maybe one of the most controversial things I've ever said on a literature podcast, <laughs> but I think he's the rightful descendant of Tolstoy. Uh, well, as Steven Pinker says, the reason why academic disputes are so vicious is that the stakes are so low. <laughs> so, so true. We can, uh, so true. We can, uh, I, can, I can risk those stakes. Yeah, you can risk those stakes <laughs> in this one. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. So I don't know, Jesse. What do you think about like what I get? My my answer, if I had to give one about your question, would be, I think we're invited to see a world much more broadly than any character in that world is supposed to see it. Obviously, like as the audience of the book, we get way more information than any individual character in that book has about what's going on. Oh yeah, we have an omni- a feeling of omniscient. I, I guess my reaction to that is often profound sympathy for the decision-making of the characters I like and whatever the opposite of that is for the characters I don't like. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a good, a good question. I guess like, I think too, like something to kind of think about, like, again, even just with the, with the Atreides and the Harkonnen, like immediately we want to see the Harkonnens completely as the bad guys. And we want to see the Atreides as, completely the good guys and like i think obviously you know who would you rather be who would you rather have as your leader duke leto or baron uh harkonnen obviously like baron harkonnen's a monster but i mean the more you kind of learn about like it's it's in the it, like there's like some of leto's ancestors are kind of described as as cruel and even some of the characteristics of like paul like there's kind of yeah paul paul doesn't have any problem killing people yeah exactly like there's a mythos yeah. And I think the Atreides, they're really good at like the, creating this mythos that makes people want to follow them. But yeah, I don't know. It's, it's kind of fun to kind of well, th- this feel is back so there. We, we promised we get to this. And I, I think this is my favorite part of the book is the religion that mm. we're presented with. The Fremen's religion, the religion of Dune. Does it have a name? It probably does. I just totally missed it. Like, do they have a name for their religion or do they even call it's, it that? It, I mean, it's so all encompassing for the Fremen, like that they don't have a name. It is everything, right? Yeah. Like, I think they're Zen Sunni. Originally, they were Zen Sunni wander- wanderers. So, like, mm. but I mean, really, there's very much kind of like a Middle Eastern theme. 
I mean, a lot of the names that they have from thing, for things are derived from Arabic. And so I think there is certainly, like, there's definitely, like, they're monotheists. So there's that, you can strike a lot of parallel, parallels with perhaps, like, Islam or, I don't know, maybe Zoroastrianism or maybe even Judaism. Um, like, a lot of kind of, like, monotheistic faiths and stuff, there's definitely some similarities there. Mm. Um, and they, and, I mean, where it can, you know, not to offend any listeners, I, I mean, I... I'm not trying to draw too many parallels with anybody's religion, but I think, and I think it's very easy to like kind of see where the departure goes because they also have this kind of, they refer to the makers as they call them. They kind of see the the worms, which they call the makers, mm. in almost kind of like they. Almost, I don't know if they would say that they were God, but they are like they're almost kind of a. Uh, I would say uh, how Hindus feel about cows, right? There's a deep reverence for them. They don't. Yeah. They don't think that they're like. The um, these omniscient beings, but there's a deep reverence. And and I I noticed with the Fremen, they just kind of have it, the res, their respect for their natural environment is so deep that it's just assumed. And I'm sure that they have ceremonies and rituals for that. And that's probably explained more in the mythos. But there's definitely a kind of like attachment to the desert planet itself and the makers specifically, but also the sand and just their different areas that give them life and even how much they respect water even like there's something quite visceral about their appreciation of arrakis that i think is also part of their belief system and and structure of their society yeah like uh oof, i i just find the prescience of a book like this could could have a, a massive impact on the world if we began to really think mm. about it but essentially the Fremen live at almost not not only do they live at peace with the natural world, they are improving the natural world. Mm -hmm. And how are they improving it? By making it better for humans to live in, mm -hmm. healthier, happier, more water. They they're they're like okay, what is the purpose of a planet? They're not like what about the natural uh, ecology of Dune? Right? They're not they're like no. The purpose of the planet is that it is a more comfortable place for humans to live, mm -hmm. right? And I think one of the warnings that people are putting out there a lot that I that I want to express on this podcast, even as a strong conservative, is there are possibilities that if the science is right and the planet is warming up, that it will be less livable for humans mm -hmm. because of that, right? Right? Yeah. And so that's something to think about. Right, mm, but, but yeah. what I love about the Fremen is they are locked in to their natural environment, and they understand, they understand everything because they're so observant. There, there's constant references in this book to how observant characters are, mm -hmm. how how clearly they're they're picking out their environment, how much they know about what's going on around them, not just in time but cataloged for later use. Well, and it seems to me they are by far the most impressive, like from an anthropological point of view, as well as mine, they're the most impressive cohort of people in the book. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, like, yes. What they're able to do is so good and so impressive that it doesn't even occur to like the quote-unquote civilized folk of the book that that could even happen. So they are so far underestimating the Fremen that they don't, they like, they can't even see the the clouds that the fremen travel in, basically. Right? Like, yeah, this yeah. is this is a group of people who've literally evolved to be in perfect harmony with their planet. Yeah, and then they go conquer the universe. Yeah. Right? So, like, I definitely want to later return to the to that 
fact of a, a in a psychological sense of like underestimating so far to a degree and what that can do because that's a huge part of the book i think but yeah i don't know like what what do you see about the fremen in that sense josiah well i think i think the fremen really i mean there's a whole kind of i forget the name of it but there's there's a whole kind of school of history where we talk like where you look at kind of the conditions that surround a society and and kind of look at the lens of like okay so this is kind of natural conditions that this society is and so this created a sort of society that acts this way. And I think that the Fremen are definitely a, an example of, of that sort of kind of thinking that they are the way they are because they live on this like incredibly hostile world. And so they're incredibly tough. They, and they're also very incredibly communal, right? Like they, they live in a, they live in a community and they, they fight to fight and die to protect the community. Like they, you know, there's several examples in the book where people sacrificially die to protect the, the rest of the tribe. And, and even among their leadership, you know, a leader dies when another leader that's a stronger leader comes up. And so they have it. Yeah. And they, they even to the point that the water is such a scarce resource that when they die. Yeah, they recycle the bodies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They extract all the water from the, someone's corpse. And then it goes back into like the cistern that is the the tribe cistern. The communal water of the Yeah, of I want to linger on that for a second because that is that's so interesting because that is a great example of something that to an outsider might seem barbaric. Oh, when you're reading it the for the first time. Right? Yeah. Like it seems like a like a backwards barbaric practice that in fact is both kind of their ritual and respect of the dead, as well as just being as practical as possible for survival. Exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah. And they don't waste anything. Like, in a sense, I feel like the Fremen are everything we like, we admire about, you know, the indigenous connection to nature. They are also everything I would admire about, like, a religion in the communal sense, right? Like, they, they absolute loyalty to one another, and there are codes of conduct that, if they are violated, result in immediate punishment, right? Because... Yeah. You need to work as a unit to survive, mm. right? You you can't be can't be going off and just doing your own thing if people are relying on you and needing you, yeah. right? And and so it's it's got that, but then it's also got this this sense of care for nature mm-hmm. that can that should be, I think, and respect for it. Yeah, that, like you need to respect the worms so much to be able to ride them. Oh, and and in fact, you need to do that so much that no one outside of the Fremen even considered that it would be a possibility. That's mm, how yeah. intimately these people know their environment, right? And so yeah. when I read it for the first time, my relationship with the Fremen was very much from a religious context because that was how I viewed the world when I first read this book. Like, as just that was the only myth that I really knew. And... um I always thought of them as the Jewish people was what I thought. Like mm. it's this, the chosen ones, right? It feels the yeah. Fremen feel like they just know that they're chosen, right? They're like, we know. Yeah. And when you read, and, and that gets even more intense, the later books. Yeah. They're just a very cool. It's just a very interesting mythos. And what I love about it is it's essentially Frank Herbert saying, Hey, you know, all those cool things you like about all of human stories. Here's my, here's my homage to human myth. Right. That's really what I, I see this book as. So those are all positive things that I think are very well vitiated by the Fremen in the book. Do you feel they have a shadow side? What is there a shadow side to the Fremen, if you could put your finger on it? 
I don't know. I feel like I might have some. Oh, there's some things for sure. Like <laughs> a complete devaluing of human life as an individual. There's no individualism, right? Especially for women. Yeah. If, if your husband yeah. dies, you're either a slave or you have to be the other man's wife. And he gets to decide. But I, I think it kind of makes me think a little bit of like the iron, like some of those Iron Age, like you kind of see it in the like in the Old Testament, like mm. if your brother dies, you take on his his widow, and I think it's just like it's a very it's it's a smart way of creating this. It's a very kind of like it's seemingly like this old kind of society where there's these sorts of responsibilities that if you kill someone, there's still a responsibility to it. Like mm. his family isn't just kind of left yeah. to kind of true be beggar. No, that's like, a really good point. A really good yeah. point. It it doesn't sound very uh, doesn't sound very uh, femi- feminist to our to our ears. Which yeah, no, it, it, there is a, there's something a little off key about it. But, <laughs> but given when you, when you put it that way, given I guess the, it's a different system you're dealing with, given the scarcity of the resources and the total need in you know an environment like that for dependence on each other, it definitely makes a lot of sense. Like that's a that's a very desert society type of thing of, to need. It does sound a little off to our, you know, 21st century urban ears, but I think that there's something, at least as far as the Fremen are based on actual societies in the past, in the desert, something quite, you know, realistic in that. But so do you, do you see a shadow side of them though, Josiah? Well, I think there was, like, they were very tribal and I think Paul, his leadership, he kind of makes them a little less tribal so there's a point, like the whole Stilgar thing. So he's the tribe that he joins is Stilgar's tribe. Right. Stilgar is the patriarch of this tribe, and he's leading them. And, and Stilgar is basically just waiting until some young Fremen finally is able to best him and kill him. And he, he reminds Paul at the beginning, he's like, oh, don't think you, you, can, you can't take me out. And eventually Paul can take anybody out because Paul is this kind of superhuman. <laughs> and so everybody in the tribe is getting more and more like fired up about Paul. And they want Paul to kill Stilgar so that Paul can be their leader. And so Paul, at some point, kind of just has to be like, you know, he gets them all together and he tells them that he's not going to do that because it's that stupid, like, why would they get rid of, like, one of these, like, this senior wise commander and that, like, Paul is going to rule all of them and Stilgar. So, like, he kind of consolidates them. And so, like, the tribal leaders still rule their tribes, but Paul is their grand leader. And so I think that there's kind of a there's kind of an honesty about maybe the limitations of the well and and so essentially he's like stop killing your like the the best of you have to stop killing one another because it's your tribal ritual which if you think about evolutionarily would definitely favor the strongest fastest most so like it's a great evolutionary if you're just talking pure genetics it's like oh well yeah we got the people should be competing for the top like hardcore right because think about it if you think about this from a sociological perspective in order to get up, to, to rise up, you have to take on the, the head guy. But you're probably, a lot of them are going to die challenging the head guy. Mm-hmm. So, and he's going to have to take on all their wives. Well, and then, and then you are weaker and you're, uh, shit, there's, there's an obvious word here I'm just blanking on, but you're, you're vulnerable. There it is. <laughs> you're right. vulnerable to attack from other tribes right. or other outsiders, right? So like, you can't be killing all what, of them. Whatever tribe. And actually, so that, that is a perfect. Um, little segue into something I noticed about, I guess, both Paul. The, Paul and Jessica makes this point. So on page, at least in our book, page 246, 247, it's like, like it's the scene where Jessica and Hawat, 
Am I or uh, Thufir? Thufir Hawat? Thufir Hawat, yeah. Am I saying that name right? I will probably be saying them wrong. They're at their stalemate, right? Like, he thinks she might be trying to betray them, but he doesn't have proof. And she is trying to convince him that she's not the one who's going to be the traitor, but she can't, she doesn't have proof either. So they're at their stalemate. And then she changes the subject to how some of the men, because this isn't their home, are feeling a little bit less, maybe not not disloyal to Leto, but <laughs> beleaguered or or maybe not as inspired or motivated as they could be. And Thufir says something like, oh, that, if any of the men say that, that's essentially treason, right? Like it's, there's an ironclad perspective that he's bringing in the same way that there's kind of an ironclad ritual that the Fremen are bringing. And I thought this was an interesting thing of both Paul and Jessica's characters. Like, like, look, I get it, but... And then, and I want to read Jessica's lines verbatim because I thought it was so interesting. Is it defeatist or treacherous for a doctor to correctly diagnose a disease? My only goal is to cure the disease. Right. And that is a, I don't even know what I would, what word I would use to like, look, I get your rituals. I get where you're coming from through fear. Yes, we don't want disloyal uh, Brutuses and Cassiuses in the ranks of our men. And we need to weed those ones out. But I think we would be foolish to not look at the real look the real world in the face and say, "Well, this is not good problem solving. This is not good um, leadership, essentially." And if you are going to bulk at these kind of based in evidence things that we might need to do to change, then we're going to suffer a major, a much bigger problem down the road that won't be solved essentially by a symbol, which is killing someone in a ritual or saying no none of our men are disloyal so they're not complaining kind of thing so i don't know like i see that as an interesting wrinkle in paul and jessica specifically in this book where both of them are like look i get where you're coming from but i I guess i'd frame it like in a real life sense it's to me it's the difference between problem solving and performing a symbol or performing a virtue for the world like yes we know you're a good person but we have a problem here. We still need to solve it. And and I think one of, <laughs> maybe this is me being controversial, like I think one of the biggest problems with our era and our culture is we are, I've said to David, we are the, we are the symbolic culture, not the problem solving culture. We are the culture of symbols, the culture of pathos and the culture of um, look at me-ism and not the culture of let's get, let's roll up our sleeves, get our hands dirty and help people's lives in a practical, legitimate way. And I guess I just... Yeah, when did that not become what <laughs> everyone wanted to do? Well, because, because and I'm going to use evolutionary terms here, the cost of appearing a certain way, but without actually having to do the work is much lower if you can get away with it. So the appearance of being someone who cares about good causes is more the appearance of being loyal to Leto without really meaning it is going to get you through Thufir's walk, but maybe not Jessica's. But Jessica's is probably going to be better 10 years from now when all of the soldiers in Leto's are like, fuck this. Why are we here? We don't want to fight for you anymore. We're sick of this. You didn't listen to us for the last 10 years, right? Right. And so I just, I, I don't know. Like, I know that that's a lot. And I'm obviously viewing it through my lens, but I guess I I was so I think that's fundamentally why I was so attracted to both Paul and Jessica's as the micro characters in this book is that I saw them as maybe tragic but still attempting to solve real problems and not just 
throw a symbol up in the air and see, look how loyal I am. Look how smart I am. Look how committed I am to this. You know, it's like, well, these are problems that are going to come up if we don't deal with them like adults. Yeah. Okay. On a similar vein, you may have kind of answered it, Luke, but what's, who are your guys' favorite characters and maybe least favorite characters in, in this book? I think when I first read this book, like my first encounter with this as literature where I just where I fell in love with it was Paul. And it's because the struggle he has with time is something I've personally not I can't project my reality like my my awareness into the future or anything like that, but I've always had like a deep intellectual struggle with the passage of time, with eternity if it exists or with the ending of life. And I just had this hyper aware relationship with my own existence. I feel like for most of my life and Paul, that is Paul's real struggle in this book is this coming to terms with his destiny, which seems to be no matter what he does to spark this, you know, (laughs) galaxy wide jihad, right? Uh, Which he's terrified of. And like that great existential question gets asked more later on, but it's all happening in the setting of these grandiose political intrigue filled moments where uh, this great chess game of geopolitics is being played. And yet the real existential problems that Paul's confronting are so personal Mm. and like, and his, and his, and it's so I loved what I loved when you were describing whether it's macro or micro, Luke, mm. because I think this is like a yo-yo of macro and micro. It's going up and down, but it looks so smooth and fluid that it that it doesn't look awkward. It, no one looks at a yo-yo going up and down and being like, ugh. It sometimes happens in the same sentence. Yeah. Like, oh, and it's just it's such genius writing. And I think the only reason that this isn't considered like the greatest work of literary genius of the 19 like uh, from 1900 to 2000 is that it was sci-fi and so i think because of the it's like space witches unless you have a nuanced knowledge of literature and pop culture like the riff you laid down earlier about star wars and all of the homages in that's what art is in a popular sense and i don't mean pop culture i mean in a popular sense, like to really love art, you need to know it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You can't you can't say you're a literature lover if you haven't read certain books that have transformed literature, right? Mm-hmm. You could say you like to read, but like literature is also a kind of almost passed down. Here I hand the torch to you. Mm. Set of stories that get added to, and I just. I feel like Dune is underappreciated in that mm. spiritual legacy of great Western novels. Right. Because it's, kind of, it's, it's sci-fi. Because it's sci-fi. So right. it, gets, it gets shelved over here, and yet mm. you've got this beautiful, sociological, but individualized god myth. Yeah. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. he's, paying, he's paying respects to... The entire Western tradition in one book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm going to put a bit of a twist on your question, Josiah, in my answer is that I actually, rather than a favorite character, I want to pick out a favorite attribute of all of the characters that are ostensibly the good guys. Uh, So, you know, like 
Paul, Jessica, Leto, and even a little bit like Gurney and Hawat and um, Duncan too, I guess, those six. So maybe this is because I work with kids, but I I found that all of those ki- – and so I'm, I'm a, like a little bit more sensitive to this – I found that all of those characters had a little bit of what I would call like an abiding patience or an abiding maturity that allowed them to not give in to their first visceral animalistic reaction to whatever situation they were in, but just to like whatever version of counting to 10, calming down, thinking clearly. And that allows, for example, that allows Paul to save Jessica in the sand slide instead of panicking and she suffocates and he can't find her and then he dies because she has all the supplies, right? Like just that kind of like, oh, I'm in a crisis. The worst thing I can do now is panic or be harmful or do anything to harm my situation. And so anyway, I don't want to, I, I felt like at different parts in the book, all of our quote unquote heroic characters displayed what I would call an abiding patience with whatever was going around them, except maybe when like Gurney and Thufir thought that they were avenging Leto, I would say they were a little bit dragged back into that animalistic reaction. And then of course it was cool that Jessica and Paul forgive that because they understand Gurney's intention, which I think is a really powerful message as well uh, for our era of understanding intention. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not just like, not just like, like pinning someone like, to some idea they had the, at one point in their life. Think right? about that for a second. The maturity in real life it would take to immediately forgive someone who just tried to kill you because you understand their intention. Like that is impressive to me, even, yeah. even in a work of fiction. So I'd say that, attribute of our heroes was my favorite characteristic of them <laughs> Ooh, okay I, I have a different one i'd like to hear yours though josiah well i think my okay so kind of favorite and least favorite so i think that oh, yeah, i'll start favorite. with my Sorry. least favorite and then obviously and then the, baron. Favorite. So the baron so obviously sucks. baron the baron harkonnen <laughs> he's the villain but i think the least the thing that i don't like about him is how short-sighted he is so he has this big long-term plan if he wants he wants to rule the galaxy and so He's very intelligent and very manipulative, and is, almost every aspect of his plan is successful, but he's very short-sighted in the sense that because he treats his people and his own family like shit all the time, it's like his nephews, who are his successors, aren't. he doesn't give them the tools to really be successful, and they're both kind of undone by their own vice. So like mm. the older nephew, Raban, he's incredibly cruel, and his cruelty turns the entire planet against them, and he doesn't... He underestimates the feminine, and the same with Fade Rafa. Fade Rafa is arrogant, like his uncle, and Fade Rafa underestimates Paul, and Paul kills him in the duel at the end. And so, so you kind of have that sort of very short-sighted, almost they're almost very individualistic in a lot of ways. Um, and then, in contrast, you have the Atreides family, and I want to maybe pinpoint a little bit more on someone we haven't talked a lot about, which is Duke Leto. And I think you know you could kind of make an argument that, like, in some people could look at the Duke Leto and Baron Harkonnen rivalry, and they can see the Baron almost more successful because he's more Machiavellian than Leto is. And so Leto kind of uses virtue in a lot of ways to govern and motivate people. And and um, the Baron uses cunning and Machiavellian, you know, tricks and stuff. And so in some ways, like, if you were a first-year poli-sci student, you'd be like, oh, like, the Baron's the Machiavellian. You know, Machiavellianism wins. But because Leto... Leto actually has a much longer term kind of plan and he realizes the importance of actually like instilling virtue and 
and pouring into his son, pouring into his men. He tr- you know, there's this one point where a lot of his his uh, his officers, there's this whole kind of plot where they think that Jessica's betraying, going to betray Leto, mm, yeah. and so they don't trust Jessica. But he never doubts that his his uh, his lover was going to betray him, even though there was like this contrived evidence. And so I think there's two ways of kind of looking at people. So one way is like trying to extract as much as you can from people. And then other ways to try and pour as much into people. And I think that's what I love about the stories. It shows how naturally that, that sort of pouring into people is like the successful, it's the long-term, like it's the long-term kind of more successful way of, of operating. Like Leto dies early on in the story, but because of the way he teaches his son to rule, his son, you know, carries a lot of that, into you know his later successes and also just the way he treats his uh his partner and the way he treats all his officers his legacy kind of lives on through all of them and so whereas the baron you know dies and you know his house of cards falls apart very quickly so i i like it's the difference between building the you know the upstate new york family estate and a Miami McMansion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And um, one of the uh, themes or, or like little quips that has come out of really true fiction that David and I like to employ sometimes are these things that are um, we call simple but vital. <laughs> so it's like they're not ex- insights exactly, but they're so important to understanding functional human life that they need to be repeated even though they're obvious. And so I think ultimate well not ultimately but a major factor of the baron why he can't be successful not not that he isn't successful why i think he can't be successful is that it's also fear he uses fear and uncertainty to govern and again in evolutionary terms there's an enforcement cost to fear you have to put time energy and resources into enforcing that fear if need be because you can't you can't say you can't say you'll do something as a punishment and then not follow through if someone transgresses, if you're the kind of leader like the Baron, because you, you have to be able to do that. Otherwise no one's going to fear you anymore. Exactly. And so if you're that, if you're putting your time, energy and resources into those enforcement costs, you are going to be less innovative, less innovative, less engaging with reality and developing, let's say technology or resources to improve your society kind of organically bottom up in a way that I think you're saying, Josiah, would be Leto's aspiration. I think Leto, deep down, aspires to have his house and his mm, people live good lives. And part of that is <laughs> providing opportunities in a way that, again, if you want to put it in political or evolutionary terms, you have low enforcement costs of punishments, which is essentially less fear, right? Yeah. And, and I think that that's a huge simple but vital truth for leadership is that fear is fear and uncertainty and high enforcement costs of that fear is just a losing strategy for dynamism let's say right i I think about it in leadership too right if your troops aren't going to fear you enough to make up for the enthusiasm gap you'd have if they love you because Mm. you give them what they want Uh, this is monsters inc think about how much more powerful the the laughter is (laughs) than the than the the screams than the screams right (laughs) 
There's there's the simple but vital there we truth. Go. They're in all of our stories at some point. Like, right. like these these things are so important that they they crop up in all sorts of everywhere. different stories, yes. right? So everywhere. Anyway, sorry, continue, yeah. David. I just I I totally clicked in my head there. No, I loved that. Oh man, yeah, Luke's on fire too. today, Josiah. You're bringing something he out is. of him. <laughs> Well, dynamism. <laughs> I don't. I don't mean to be da rude, but it's a sandstorm. Oh man, that Okay, Joe's. What do you think of all that? I guess here's one thing, and this is a very like it's a totally different train of thought. So, kind of going back to the differences between the Atreides and the Harkonnen. Do you guys think that there's anything kind of like, do you think that the whole kind of plot to kind of make the, so first of all, there is a traitor, which we didn't talk about at all, which there is a traitor among the Atreides that leads to the Duke's death, mm. which is, which is doc- again, doc- very, doc- um, very of the Jesus story, right? right. There's a Judas, yes. there's a Judas, there's a Judas in this yes. story. So do you guys think that the Atreides, like their loyalty and their kind of culture that the Atreides have made them more weak? towards like the plot in the sense that not that they like were naive but in the sense that it really like it really so it's time to talk about subterfuge folks yeah 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 (laughs) Yeah, i i would just say what do you guys think i have a relatively short answer to that so i want to i want to let david have full reign to to go off well i i think what i interpret it's it's just an interesting we this might be this kind of book is a rorschach test i think because i am mentally biased to the psychological and the micro stuff i pick out that stuff more and i i think the reason the betrayal worked is because thufir and gurney i can't remember as well if gurney is on this train but thufir is so convinced that it's jessica that he overlooks ua or you whatever however you pronounce his name and we've talked about this a few times in other books and movies. Like, if you get on a train of thought, if you're so convinced in Harry Potter, Harry is so convinced it's either Malfoy or Snape, he can't consider any other options. I think that tunnel vision is all like I. That's to me the essential cause. The tunnel vision of Thufir is why the if he was more on his game and more panoptical, he would have found. Oh no, it was it was the Doctor. But he well, was and like he he was he was more interested in his own ability to sniff out evidence than the context that he knew. Yeah. Right? If he'd really paid attention to the to c- the context of his environment, he would know that there was no way Jessica was going to ever betray Leto. Or maybe he would have done more research to realize that the Baron had his wife, had Yue's wife, yeah. or Yue's wife. That would right? be a valuable piece <laughs> yeah. of data. And, and it seems like <laughs> something that would be in the wheelhouse for Thufir to figure out if he was open to the, all of the design space of evidence, right? Yeah. But anyway, subterfuge, David. <laughs> so, uh, and I'm going to do a little interesting thing here, but I think it's funny because this actually plays into Palantir, which is a stock oh, the that, stone. I'm, that I'm, well, which is a seeing <laughs> stone from a Lord of the Rings uh, book. But in this context, it is a company that provides AI data analytic and data integration software. And this is why I think it's interesting. What they've discovered, this company's discovered, is that computers are really good at looking for patterns, but they're really bad at figuring out what patterns mean. Because mm-hmm. humans, we are pattern, not only pattern creating beings, actually essentially 
That's pattern what I think interpreting. We are. We're pa- we're pattern creating. We are we love patterns. And I will give you an example from this very podcast. Luke making the connections between Dune and Star Wars. Humans love that, mm. right? <laughs> Humans love patterns, so they're really good at seeing patterns. So are interpreting p- patterns, but computers are better at finding them. So what is Palantir? You marry the two. You say, here are all the patterns. Human, what does it mean? And you have data analysts go through the patterns, not try to find the patterns. Right. And they've married the two, and it's genius, right? It, it's transforming how decision makers interact with data. And why is that connected to Dune? Mm. Because in Dune, if a security firm who was looking after Do- or Duke Leto's safety had every piece of data available to them, i.e. that this man's wife had been captured by the Harkonnens, then they would have known that he or, was the Or most- even the Harkonnen claimed that he could provide the wife right. if he did this thing. Not even that he had No, it, no, just right? having that piece yeah. of information would transform your security parameters. Mm. And it's not just in things like this. I was recently engaged in a large campaign for the Conservative Party of Canada for the leadership, and in that campaign we collected a lot of data but that doesn't matter if you don't know what to do with it we had tons of information but then we had our strategist looking at the information saying oh that people who are just innately know what's going on you have to marry man and machine and the result is so much superior to machine and i think that's actually a great theme of Dune that has been divorced in the human mind and, and, and maybe we actually bought into that law, that idea, right? That machines are better than, than humans. But actually, I think Dune is a celebration of humans, mm. a celebration of the human mind. And mm. the w- part of what the human mind is really good at is picking up tiny little patterns, which this book is constantly describing characters picking up patterns and interpreting the data. Right? And it's, then knowing what to do. And then faints knowing, within faints within faints. Faints within faints within faints. This is a this book is a reflection on the uniqueness of the human mind in opposition to the computer. Mm. It's basically a love like a love letter mm. to humanity. Because it's like here are the things you're really good at. One of them, political intrigue. Yeah. Infighting yeah, in like yeah. a loyalty to, like, it's such a human book. It, so, so you're saying the Atreides needed a computer. That <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a computer. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean. <laughs> I don't know. What, what do you think, Josiah? So I think kind of going back to, so I think part of why this plot like really screwed with the Atreides was that they valued loyalty and assumed loyalty so much more. So the idea that there was a traitor really challenged a lot of assumptions that they had about everybody that they had on their team. Like, oh, like Jessica loves Leto or, you know what I mean? Like Dr. Yui, they didn't even question Dr. Yui because of his conditioning in the Souk school as a doctor. So they, they assumed a lot about the integrity of the so people it was a, around them. It, was, it wasn't just a practical problem. It was an identity problem. Exactly. And so there's a, I forget where it is in the book, but they talk, there's, maybe it's one of those preambles or it's something, but it's basically this idea that fear, if you can make your opponent afraid, then they start being desperate. So I think that the whole plot wasn't just about actually killing the Duke. It was also about making them ent- entirely fearful. And so then they started missing things. And I think through fear, how it, the 
the Mentat at House Atreides was there was a lot of fear kind of going on as he was trying to figure out who this was and the implications, you know what I mean? Like, whereas if it was hard, if it was flipped, the Harkonnens, I don't think it would have really screwed with them that much because they all hated and feared each other anyways. So it wouldn't have really changed anything. And I think maybe they might've even found the betrayer quicker because they weren't as kind of thrown off by emotion because they didn't, they didn't necessarily have that kind of, that's, that identity of that sense of loyalty. Like maybe there was a natural distrust of everybody. So anyways, yeah, that that's my kind of thought of why that plot particularly was so uh, problematic for the Atreides. Yeah. 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 That's a good point. That's a good point. I think, I mean, this is a boring answer. I think ultimately that was in the book to make a good book, <laughs> right? Like that, the betrayal, the betrayal motif is very compelling, right? Yes. It's it's one of the most compelling. There's a reason why the traitor is in the lowest rung of hell in Dante's Inferno, yes, right? Like, exactly. A, like, exactly. Loyalty it, it it makes you care. Yeah. And as the reader, we care more because the stakes are higher. But it's such an emotional and, personal experience yeah. betrayal, right? It's mm-hmm. that I mean and even when um Ger- I think it's Gurney is about to kill Jessica, mm-hmm. right? It's because he thought Jessica betrayed him. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. And yet interestingly, little little again a little wrinkle in the um stereotype of the traitor story uh, or maybe not, I don't know. UA provides the escape and the like he gives Leto the the thing in his tooth to be able to kill the Baron and he provides like the helicopter I think or some like I can't remember exactly but he allows he he gives the resources for Paul and Jessica to be able to escape. What whatever they're not called helicopters. What are they called again? Hello, ornithopters. Yeah, ornithopters. yeah, yeah. That's right. And so differently than Judas, Judas doesn't regret his decision until after he makes it. But UA seems to know he'll regret his decision before he makes it. So he still provides them with <laughs> the opportunities to benefit or get away or whatever. And I thought I thought that was an interesting like. What do you think is different in the traitor story there? Is there any other connections, like other stories where that's like it? Like, is it less or more realistic to have like a a world weary realist who's a traitor as opposed to like a <laughs> avaricious, True. Uh, True. I just want my 30 silver pieces traitor? Like, I, I thought that was an interesting twist on the traitor trope. Yeah, it's like he knows he's going to be a traitor. He doesn't want to be a traitor and he tries to minimize the damage of his betrayal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. More concise than me. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I think the other really kind of interesting thing about him versus maybe other kind of forms of betrayal you've seen in books is that Frank Herbert doesn't try to hide the fact that he's going to betray him. It's very kind of mm. spelled out. Like, we know, even though nobody else knows, we know that Yui is the traitor. Yeah. You know, there's that scene where Yui gives Paul this book. It's almost the Orange Catholic Bible, which is this, like, incredibly, like, expensive almost sort of relic kind of item and um you know it's very you you can tell it kind of takes a toll on yui that like yui's probably not the kind of person that would normally do this but the it's it speaks of almost like he's it's i think it almost kind of speaks of first of all the baron it sets the baron up as this like incredibly cunning villain like he's so good at manipulating people. Yeah. Yui should know that, like, Yui ostensibly says that he's going to be reunited with his wife, but he should know that he won't be because, like, he should know that the Baron is the Baron and that, like, you know, mercifully, the Baron kills both him and his wife. You know, that's maybe 
Mm-hmm. So maybe the Baron did think he did live up to his end of the deal, but um, yeah, I don't know. It's just kind of interesting. I think I think the whole that other side of the Yui plot is that it speaks to like Yui is not he doesn't actually seem like really like a bad guy. He almost seems like a very naive, He's very guy. sympathetic. Yeah, it also kind of I think there's the other side of it too. It's like there's a bit of kind of fatalism about the fate of Duke Leto, like when he's about to, when he takes out Leto, he's like, oh, you were going to die anyways. And like, everybody kind of seems to think that like the Reverend, like the truth sayer, when she talks with Paul at the beginning, she seems to think it too, that like the Reverend mother. Yeah. The Reverend mother's like, Mm -hmm. your dad's done. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think this might've been the first book ever, maybe not ever, but I can't remember one where within like the first hundred pages, it's kind of like, okay, it's a trap. They know it's a trap. They're going. They know that they're going to be attacked. And they're just kind of like trying to be ready for it as best as they can. And they're not totally sure it will work. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, we're probably, there's this, I love how it just opens tragically. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, this is the, a dying house in a, in a ruthless universe with an, with an <laughs> empire. And, you know, and then you got this. You get then you get the you know the quintessential hero's journey right goes into the desert meets the wise old man mm-hmm. you know trains in the art of of a magical like yeah. this is this is the story as old as time this is the, the 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 messianic story but the crazy part is this is the messianic story planted by this group of missionaries into the consciousness of these planets tens of thousands of years before i mean what a, there's like the island that movie <laughs> they plant like yeah. memories and things into their like it, they're they're essentially like clones for organ yeah. harvesting but they have all these backstories oh, yeah what was, like, yeah i remember like, that movie well yeah. there's lots of movies like this where like they plant memories into like the matrix yeah even, i guess only this or, is like uh, gene planting again yeah it's a it's a homage to humans because mm-hmm. it's like oh we're going to do this project over thousands of years yeah. because that's how you actually manipulate human genetics. You can't, you know, it's not a computer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, going back to how this book was maybe influenced by the foundation, I think it definitely that idea that, and you see it first in the foundation, which is that big, long, that idea of that thousands of years long, kind of long-term human project of saving civilization in Dune, it's, the Benny Gesserit and the Fremen, like it's these really long-term kind of planning. Yeah. And then later on in other novels, there's, you know, that sort of kind of thinking continues. So, well, actually I, uh, I think that's a perfect segue into the next um, kind of big topic I wanted us to cover in this podcast for Dune, because it's even <laughs> like literally in foundation and Dune, the, the abiding, government is called the empire <laughs> well i guess there's a star wars thing there too. <laughs> is there an empire in star wars anyway <laughs> uh, yeah. uh and 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 then additionally we're led to believe that there's house atreides there's house harkonnen or harkonnen and then there's also like lots of other houses i think Tons. lots of other great houses well, right? but but the interesting thing there's is there's the that... starks and the yeah. uh, <laughs> and the lannisters, <laughs> lannisters. anyway baratheons uh and 
like in Foundation, the reason in Foundation Harry Seldon is saying to the Empire, look, you're going to collapse because you're caring about all of these bureaucratic nothing nothingnesses and you're going to get weak and collapse and I'm planning on that. And instead of 29, instead of 30,000 years of recovery, I only want it to be 1,000 years of recovery because I'm making that, you know, utilitarian calculus for everybody right now. But I wanted to tie this into a, a big theme I noticed in this book and I've alluded to it a bit already, but I want to start it with a with a quote from Leto on our book in page page 168. He says, We're morally tired. The melancholy degeneration of the great houses has afflicted me at last, perhaps. And we were such a strong people once. And then, of course, we've talked a lot about how, like, there's all this political intrigue and who can do what for me when and, you know, backroom deals. And, Which is and, why and, he never marries the and, love of his life. And, and exactly. doesn't marry the love of his life and on and on and on. And... All this is happening while the Fremen are learning how to ride worms, yeah. right? All of this is happening <laughs> yes. while, while Sardaukar are in the trenches fighting, right? So the difference between the great houses and the people on the ground are like the difference between, you know, generals and frontline soldiers. It's the difference between, I guess what I'm really saying is that recently in my life, over the last six months to a year, I've really started internally both emotionally and mentally struggling with this tension between management, administration, and bureaucrats versus frontline people. And I, I get such a tunnel vision myself of like, well, why does all the value have to be controlled by all the people who tell the people who can create value what to do? Like, I just sense this manifest unfairness in that kind <laughs> of the way I'm yeah. feeling it and seeing yeah. it, you know? And, and, and I, I, you know... When you feel a certain way, you look for things in maybe books and movies in ways that they aren't exactly flesh. But like, I can't help but notice that it's not House Harkonnen that learns how to ride worms, and it's not these. It's not the Empire. The the what is it? The Pasha Pashada or how, the the Empire the Emperor. Padishaw. Yeah, yeah, Padishaw. He's taken aback when Paul does what he does at the end, and it's like, again, all of our most impressive characters in this books are people who what I what I say they do is they interact authentically with reality. Yes. And that's why even the Sardaukar are so <laughs> scared of the Fremen or like respectful of them at the very least. Because they're like, look, you don't get it. These people, they're they, rough. We're, we're they really good at killing, but they're they way better at killing than we are. So I guess like I'm inviting both of you to talk about the framing around great houses, management administration bureaucracy versus the people who have to interact with reality and i guess the calling of my heart is something around like giving giving the people who do interact with reality a little bit more say in the world i guess because those are often the ones who innovate for us or 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 know what they're talking about we say so anyway maybe i just needed a therapy session there no 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 i I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, Josiah knows how I feel about bureaucracy. <laughs> so I don't know. Like, is there any anything positive to pull out of that, Josiah? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. I like I like that sort of analogy. I think you're right. Like, I think um, I think that the the sort of the political system in Dune. You know, first of all, it's like how old it is. Like, there. I think that there is a sense that I mean, especially kind of given the fact that some of their strictors, like the fact that they're not allowed to use machines and stuff, there was kind of an expediency. So there's definitely like a utility and expediency towards the great house system and all that, like their ability to kind of protect, 
protect people. And, and I mean, it, we're not going to go too deep into the lore, but there's, there's definitely a reason and a time and a purpose and a strength behind that sort of system, I think. But I think that there's, there's definitely a sort of a stagnation that you, that you it's kind of hinted at and that the fact that they even the emperor who is supposed to be the most powerful person in their political system, he's very much limited in what his ability to do things mm-hmm. and respond to crises. And the fact that, you know, a bunch of people who very much live on the fringe of the empire under kind of a united leadership are able to completely topple the system speaks to its weakness. And so I think, you're right. There's there is something that can kind of I think. Well, and I just remembered a plot thing. I just remembered something in the plot that I think reinforces my point is that even all of these politi- all of these political entities, the empire, all the great houses, they are still beholden to spice. Right? They're beholden to their economies around spice. And what is it? Paul says, if you can destroy something, you own it. Right? Yes. So yeah. the fact that they can. Paul uses reality, like the chemical properties of whatever that pocket is of water to destroy their salt mines or, or, or spice mines. Like your intrigue, your management, your administration, the, the, the bloating of your bureaucratic middle is going to be nothing without the real life thing to trade. Unless you have spice, <laughs> right? you got nothing. You're not the gonna... spice must flow. All <laughs> yeah, right. So... At the final end of it, even they are still beholden to reality, which is kind of like, I guess, my point is that at some yeah. point we're all beholden to reality. So I just sense a, an injustice in in uh, so many of the people who have to engage with reality more often than other people who get to be their bosses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the, that kind of leadership, it's, it speaks to the weakness of that kind of leadership versus Paul. Where yeah. Paul is on the ground, he's completely his sense of awareness of how what how things really are is much more fine tuned than the emperor, who is kind of very removed and aloof. And so both the emperor and the baron don't realize what's happening until it's way too late, and then they've they've lost control of the situation. So, mm. well, I you guys know this, like I mean, as you pointed out early on, this is a commentary on the on American reliance on oil as well, mm-hmm. right? It's it's literally oh, saying. Hey, you might be the emperor of the freaking world, but if you don't get and and then obviously here's a parallel for you in the real world, a desert where there's a really valuable thing. Yes. <laughs> I wonder where that might be. Um, is it a wonder wall? I'll find it at that oasis. A racket, which kind of sounds like a rack. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Good point. Good point. <laughs> So, I mean, Frank Herbert is not a subtle man to the to the intelligent observer, mm-hmm. but he is definitely a man who loves intelligently observing. Right. Okay. Yeah. I I feel like I haven't framed this as positively as I want to because I know deep down I'm an optimist and I'm not a hater. So I don't want to like just feel like I'm railing on managers or administrators or bureaucrats, though I feel that way a little bit. It's more that I just, I wonder, and, and as, as a culture evolves and gets more technological and becomes more like the Harkonnens and the Empire and less like the Fremen and even the Sardaukar, I sense a loss of vitality because more and more people in that culture don't have to interact with reality in the same way. So you're losing practical knowledge about like know-how techne right like how the greek techne like 
you're, you're, you're losing technical how. knowledge. Yeah. Well, and and one of the things that Josiah of uh, Josiah and I have a friend named Anthony, and one of the things that Anthony says is. Um, Every board of directors of every company should have a representative of the employees on that board. Mm-hmm. And yeah. maybe two, maybe four. Yeah. You know what? Why not? Mm-hmm. And the purpose of those employees should not be to represent only the employee's interest. It should also be, hey, I know how the day-to-day grind of a Walmart is. Mm-hmm. As a manager of a Walmart, I can teach you how to be more efficient keep your workers happier. I have like the number of times you hear things like that, right? Where it's like people who do things every day no ways to do it more quickly unless they're forced to do it the same way every time. Well, here's another example from my life is that in my last three years of university, I was involved with the Resident Students Association at the University of Calgary, and it was a 100% student-led and run advocacy and event planning group and and, and a mentor group, basically, for, for students and residents. So we had, you know, it, at the time, I mean, it was nice. I was it, it had an operating budget of one hundred and ten thousand dollars, and we we were and, and my last year in it, I was the president of this organization, and I got to meet with high university administrators all the time as an executive for this and representative of this group of students. But I myself was still a student while this was happening, so that's kind of what you're talking about, it's right? Good like, practice, yeah, yeah. And it's like great personal growth for me, but also just like you get this weird kind of like look on well-meaning. Uh, administrators' faces who just had no idea that this was an issue because yeah. they don't talk to anyone. They never thought about they don't anything to, on the ground. They don't talk to anyone in the midst of the people who they make decisions for. This is why on political <laughs> campaigns, you know? I like to go door knocking as much as I can. Yeah, because it's like if I'm not doing the 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 groundwork myself, at least a little bit, I'm gonna have no idea. Like mm-hmm. that, how I didn't learn how to make a better database by. Reading about databases, Mm -hmm. I learned about how horrible it was to work with databases on political campaigns and be like, these are the things that would be nice to have, right? And like, just maybe to put my finishing thought on this topic is that David and I have talked a number of times about, um, we've entitled our anniversary reflections as podcasting as soul craft, like, yeah, just having having a hobby or having some sort of element planned out in your life where you're interacting with the world whether it's like gardening or for me it's playing guitar like something that is just of nature or of reality that is unforgiving unless you do it right is such great training and psychologically nourishing you get a real boost out of it when you do that so it's almost like a it's like a psychological psa even (laughs) for like it's actually better for your first person existential place in the world to be able to not just have to do political intrigue all the time. Yeah, <laughs> that too. <laughs> you know, that like, too. like yeah. harnessing yourself. Like it's not surprising why when we want to get back to the things that matter, it's like our families. Uh, you got a dog today, Josiah, right? Like just these, yeah. and, and that dog, unless you treat it right and, and have the same and have like a, a, a relationship with it. Like there's a lot of things that can go wrong with animals, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so I don't know. That's I, I, I don't like to leave it negative. I want to leave it positive. So that's hopefully that's my attempt sure. to make it positive. One other kind of positive thought I had, and it's kind of related to this idea of like workers and management, was that um, one of, I think one of my favorite, other favorite characters of the story is Gurney Halleck. And I just yeah. really love how Gurney is this guy. He's he's one of the uh, Atreides soldiers. So he obviously, like he's a killer. And, and you would think, I mean, by any accounts of war or any kind of violence like that, like, None of us are, are men of violence, but it definitely 
dehumanizes people to have to do things like that. But mm -hmm. his love of music, his love, you know, he's always quoting things. So his love of literature and stuff. Right, I think yeah. him having that and that sort of kind of that bond with the other people that he works with and his leader, like it, it helps him kind of hold on to his humanity. And I don't know, I just found that a kind of a very incredibly hopeful thing, this idea that human beings, no matter the sort of like kind of things that we go through, the sorts of trauma or <laughs> sorts of horrible things we have to do, like we can still hold on to our humanity. So. Yeah, that actually reminds me of one of the best, as as I'm sure you know, and David definitely knows, one of my favorite Prometheans was uh, Christopher Hitchens. And he talked about how the fatal flaw of the army is that the tank needs to be driven by a human and the human can still read poetry and literature and learn how to love. Yes. And, uh, yes. Again, as a side effect, like that's one of the terrors of AI. Potentially. Yeah. Ro robots. Yeah. Robots ro ro killing ro killer robots. So, are so a maybe, messy. maybe like this is, I'm saying this as a joke, but maybe not like maybe we need to program into AI a love of Dickens and T.S. Eliot, yeah, and Dostoevsky, human, human and literature, and what? Like, I don't think it's a mistake that included in everything we that Carl Sagan put on the Voyager was the Beatles, Bob Dylan, all this music, right? Like, it, it, it we want, we want that to be our one legacy. Of the, one of the first things that an alien race finds out about us, or at least Carl Sagan did, who's another, you know, a luminary in my mind. I would say if I wanted to give an alien a primer of what it is to be human, like the, the really cool parts, I would give them Dune. <laughs> yeah. That's good. That's good. Yeah. It's like, they're capable of this. Yeah. We know this, that this, at yeah, least yeah. one of them did this. <laughs> yeah. And the alien starts to find, look for arrakis. Yeah. <laughs> Where's the, the spice? spice? <laughs> and then I just also noted, this is not a long topic, but I think it's interesting is that um, the Harkonnens, they know that the best way for them to, like, there's this part of this plan that the Baron has, he pits Jessica and Thufir against each other, right? And it reminded me of Captain America Civil War, <laughs> where uh, where uh, Zemo, the villain in, in that movie, he knew he couldn't beat the Avengers. He knew the only people who could beat the Avengers were the other Avengers. And so he managed to manipulate them. And I mean... If only there was like a Leviathan nation in the world that just hated each other itself right now. And if only there was like a country <laughs> that was that beating we, up on itself, that was beating up on itself, <laughs> that we want to maintain benign hegemony in the world, <laughs> and all the other countries and its enemies know that they aren't strong enough to beat it, but uh. but it's strong enough to beat itself. Uh, oh, man, what could a, that be? What an interesting hypothetical to ponder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like it's just. Oh, I don't know. There should be a word when something is so obvious that it's it's like so it's almost like an animal animal farm or 1984. Like the lie is so big, you have to sell your soul to believe it. Yeah, right. Like it's yeah, so audacious, exactly. like, or or so obvious. Like what could be more obvious than that? Your enemies is, want you to be divided. The the polarization of America benefits primarily China and Russia. Oh. <laughs> One hundred percent. Like key bono, yeah. key bono. I, every time I, I teach all, everyone that I like work with this phrase, right? Key bono. Yeah. Who benefits? Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. That will tell you more about any human decision. <laughs> that one phrase. Just ask yourself all the time. Key bono. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I would say, gentlemen, that I think we're basically like I don't really have any other substantive notes left. I mean, I thought it was interesting. I always like reading these old, 
older novels or books or, or movies that project technology because I was like, they really wouldn't have the internet. Yeah. <laughs> like they really wouldn't have this like database communicating yeah, yeah. device. They have like basically helicopters and like lasers yeah. <laughs> and they can transport through time yeah. or so space and time. That's neither here nor there. I just, you know, Frank Herbert covers his butt because it's like, he makes a rule that there's no thinking machine. So then he's yeah. like, Oh, you know, like, Mm. Yeah. So yeah, how he covers his butt on that one is it's actually one of the greatest parts of the lore of this of this universe is there is a what's it the Balerian genocide? The Butlerian jihad. The Butlerian jihad which mm. was when the machines started to kill all the humans. It was basically AI took over and and started right. to like try to eradicate humans from the face of existence. Oh, and like Terminator. Only worse, like because it isn't one planet; it's like the whole galaxy. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, Terminator and, on yeah. steroids, and so that's why they're in a feudal system now without the theoretically internet, right? Is because they had to kill all of the machines. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's good. You you tend to plot. It's just funny. It's like, I just it's such a mismatch of technology. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I you know. have this amazing ordinance and no telecommunications. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kind of going back to your point too about plot, it also makes for a much more interesting plot. You know oh I mean? yeah, yes, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Swords no. and shields and <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I giant worms. That, okay, there is probably one of my favorite Dune things that is like a purely Dune. This is the, the this is shows the absolute and utter genius of the creative mind of Frank Herbert. Knife fighting is a thing mm. because human-sized shields. I bet you he read Asimov and he's like, oh man, human-sized shields would change combat entirely. Mm. Right? If you had like yeah. nucle- little nuclear-powered shields you were running around with. So in a, if like when you were describing aspects of Dune that's in Star Wars, that's an aspect of Foundation again that's in Dune. Mm-hmm. Little personal shields transforms battle and then he describes in detail how knife fighting would work. Yeah, yeah. Knife, yeah. And like, and like, is it not a knife fight between Paul and Jameis? Yeah. Right? So, yeah. interesting. Uh, maybe another movie. I brought up a Marvel movie earlier. Like, that's kind of Black Panther. Yeah. Where Wakanda is this massively technologically advanced, and yet to determine their leadership, it's like a... It's like a... A brawl. A brawl. <laughs> right? You know? It's like, no, we're no. not going to use our, like futuristic spaceships to defeat <laughs> our to determine yeah. our leadership we're just gonna go fight on the edge of a cliff <laughs> yeah i kind of it's almost like um dune is to the foundation what um game of thrones is to the lord of the rings where it's like mm. taking those sorts of rules but bringing them to their logical kind of conclusions you know yes, like yes you're right yeah you're right it's so true that's a really good way of putting it and you know what? We would be remiss to not talk about the upcoming movie. Yeah. I imagine some of our listeners will have probably never heard of really true fiction until they listen to this episode. Because uh, we're going to be, you know. Um... But now they're doing it. Oh. <laughs> they're doing it. <laughs> Oh, boy. Um, I haven't done a pun in like four episodes. Yeah, I know. It's great. (laughs) But anyway, my my point is, I think that Dune, you've said a lot of times, this is the perfect story for really true fiction. I feel like Dune Mm -hmm. is the perfect really true fiction book. Yeah. Because it's about all of the things that I love, sociology, politics, religion, uh, resources, governance, leadership, 
and all the way down to the psychological mm-hmm. kind of trauma that being in an existing being has. Basically, like everything we like to talk about. Everything we like <laughs> to talk about are major themes in this book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, and it's so beautifully done, but. I sometimes wonder: Is it would it be beautifully done to someone who doesn't like, you know, space operas? Well, I mean, I don't know. I feel like this book is really popular. That's true, and quite. I mean, when I so this is anecdotal, but when I bought this book in the in the bookstore like a month and a half ago, the cashier was like, "Oh, dude, nice." my husband's reading that and he's really into it. And then there was like three people beside me in the checkout and they're like, oh yeah. And then I, I, so this is funny. I mentioned, oh, I think it was written in the eighties. And then the guy looked at me like he was like, and then I caught myself. No, no, no. The, sorry. The movie was in the eighties. The book was earlier. And he's like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, yeah. like, look, no, look, people look, who love boot, loon, don't, dune love dune. Don't make a mistake around the nerds no don't no, you ever right. ever ever make a factual mistake around the nerds <laughs> no no they like some people who love things really love what they love right right joe oh, yeah yeah leave it to the nerds one kind of fun nerdy fact um so apparently part of what inspired frank herbert to write these books or write this book was that he lives he's from uh, i believe it's washington state mm. and there's sand dunes yeah oh. I, I don't know if it's one so there's like some of the sand dunes yeah, in Washington. Yeah, yeah, there's a, right. So yeah. walking around. You know, yeah, we, and he was also involved in like combating desert desertification in Washington State. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Like growing trees and think- sand dunes and stuff. <laughs> and so that background kind of inspired. Oh, you know, I love it. I love it. Yeah, I mean, our, the, the kind of like stereotype of Washington State and Oregon are these lush forests and these really green, rainy cities, you know, and, you know, riots. <laughs> and actually like... The eastern part of those states are deserts. Yes. <laughs> well, know, and like, BC and some of interior BC is kind of a desert yeah, too. Yeah, like Kamloops and Osoyoos, yeah. that whole like that that kind of corridor. That corridor of the Okanagan yeah. is very desert like. So Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Any any last thoughts? I wanna I wanna read one of the poems that Irulan reads, the one that made an impact on me. But I don't know, like any any other thoughts on this book? Because I'm out of notes. <laughs> uh yeah, yeah. I have that quote, but I'll I'll grab it and read it at the end too. Okay. Oh, I don't know. Like this this is such <laughs> this to me is what reading's about. Is diving into a book like this. These were the books along with like the Red Wall books, which I think we've talked about mm-hmm. on the podcast, and like story. This is story. Mm-hmm. This is storytelling at its finest, it's world building but it's psychologically impactful. And if you really read this book, I think you're just going to be left an enriched person. Mm. Yeah. I think what I like about it the most is just, I remember when I was a 18 year old and studying first year political science and there was um, Francis Fukuyama, you know, that idea of like the end of history that like society was going to reach this point where, Suddenly, we, you know, we've discovered what we need to discover and society and we've ordered ourselves in an optimal way and, and things wouldn't really kind of change. Maybe things would develop, but like our political order wouldn't really change. And I think that sort of idea was very powerful, especially in the maybe in the 1990s when I was growing up as a child. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I just really love how this book is like totally like screw that. Like it's like, no, humanity will continue to morph and continue to change. And like the future would seem so different than the past, but that even despite how much things change, there's these threads 
of what makes us human that it's incredibly relatable. Like whether it's Sargon of Akkad or and you know like the Legends of Hammurabi or right, yeah, you know, Paul Atreides. It's like there's something very kind of intrinsically relatable, and you all, it's almost by having that setting that is so alien and so bizarre to us that we're able to kind of see that. And that, I don't know. That's interesting, Josiah, because that reminds me of um, the idea of in it from Notes from Underground, the Dostoevsky short story, where his point in that was like by portraying this really like cantankerous, unpleasant personality, the the narrator of that story, his point is human there's something in the human soul or personality that will lash out and even against its own interest just to exert its own freedom right like there's something obviously there's something intolerable about tyranny but there's something also intolerable about passive liberal democracies that let you just exist yeah yeah (laughs) you know and i think that that's something interesting too is that we look we we get meaning out of struggle and I think humans get so much meaning out of struggle that if there isn't struggle, they'll invent it. <laughs> they'll figure out a way to make it there because of just probably the boring yeah. answer is there's evolutionary reasons for that. But I think the existential realization of that is very, very powerful. And and one of the huge things I really love about Dostoevsky, and um, I don't know, like that might be totally different than your point there but it it reminded me of that like yeah like no history doesn't end because people aren't different (laughs) you know yeah and i i would argue that we we spend a lot of time looking at out at the outside world developing technologies being in awe of the natural world or the technological world but i think what one i love about this book is it makes us remember what we love about the human world Mm, that's great okay that's a perfect tie-in because I'm gonna we 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 brought up Irulan or Irulan. She's got kind of a hard name to say, yeah. and and her observations. So I just wanted to read this poem, which will just kind of be like my closing thoughts because uh, I, I I like the hopefulness of it. So this is uh, uh, the chapters aren't labeled, but it's like page 256 in our one. So the poem is: Do you wrestle with dreams? Do you contend with shadows? Do you move in a kind of sleep? Time has slipped away. Your life is stolen. You tarried with trifles, victim of your folly. And I want to tie this in a little bit to the episode that will have come out just before this one, which is our Christmas episode. We did a Christmas carol. And one of my big takeaway of a Christmas carol it is the obvious one is like Scrooge gets the gets a second chance, right? Like Scrooge gets the opportunity to see in a kind of, we, we made the connection and in a kind of Donnie Darko way, he gets to see his his trajectory come back and then change it right and obviously that's like a metaphor for thinking about your life thinking about your follies and i just love that kind of poem because it makes me be able to as a reader of literature and like really really beautiful literature and sci-fi being obviously something obviously dune is a great example of how sci-fi can be beautiful literature yes what are my follies? What are my trifles that I might fall, fall victim to tomorrow, next week, next month, next year? And how do I forego them now? And I, and I just love that literature is the kind of thing that allows you to think like that. And so that's something out of Dune that I would take away. Yeah, I'd, I'm actually going to quote another one of the... Of, of the poems? Of or, the, the, po- or the Well, of the little yeah. uh, proverbial meditations, let's call it, that is at the beginning of each chapter. 
This one, I think, ties really well into exactly what Luke said. And I would say that if I had to like describe words that I felt more described really true fiction, I don't, don't think I could find them. So mm, cool. I mean, this is just for me what really true fiction is. There is in all things a pattern that is part of our universe. It has symmetry, elegance, and grace. Those qualities you find always in that which the true artist captures. You can find it in the turning of the seasons, in the way sand trails along a ridge, in the branch clusters of the crotus bush or the patterns of its leaves. We try to copy these patterns in our lives and our society, seeking the rhythms, the dances, the forms that comfort. Yet, it is possible to see peril in the finding of the ultimate perfection. It is clear that the ultimate pattern contains its own fixity. In such perfection, all things move toward death. <laughs> and I hope that always this podcast is a bit of a memento mori. <laughs> because that means you're going to live a fuller life mm -hmm. in, the, in that knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously, this goes without saying, though, given my level of verbosity, I will still say it. Thanks so much, Josiah, for coming on the podcast. Um, you've been a really lovely fan, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, I... I, I like I like to think it's not just because you're friends with David. <laughs> that might have been yeah. that might have been the buy-in, but I hope there's staying power. But also just like yeah, you know, I, you take your time. You you the Dune is not a short book, so obviously you love it, but you take the time to read it. You take time out of a Saturday evening to join us and talk about it. And um, I just want you to know I'm really grateful for that. I really appreciate that, man. So thank you for being a guest on the podcast. Yeah, and I guess I would just add to that. Thank you for being. Uh, kind of one of my Lido's inner guard guys, like just my, was my, one of my best friends guys. He's been there with me since I was a little 18 year old punk kid in university. He was in my dorm and we've known each other for a long time now. Mm. So I just love that we got to share this podcast together. It's special for me because this is a guy that I've had these kind of conversations right. with about a lot of things over the years. Mm -hmm. And I think what drew me to what really true fiction is, which is having these kind of conversations and hoping that you guys all enjoy it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, th thank you so much, guys. I, I, as you were saying earlier, Luke, like obviously my interest initially knowing David, but yeah. I, I wouldn't have stayed listening to all the hours and hours of <laughs> wonderful podcasts you guys have if it wasn't interesting. And I think for me, part of what has always been so enjoyable about listening to these podcasts is that it's kind of imagining myself being able to have a conversation with you guys and i've had you know there's been we've had many wonderful conversations before this podcast and i i don't know it's just it was an absolute uh, pleasure to be able to <laughs> chat well, you're welcome you. back anytime absolutely guys. come we'll up with the next one. one we'll make you a, a okay. semi-regular <laughs> do you hey. have anything internet or social media related that you want to promote um no, I don't really have any other thing, anything else that I'm kind of involved with. I'm, I'm like David Parker, a political animal, so I'm right. much more just involved in campaigns, and I don't want to alienate uh, any listeners that you know may have different political leanings than myself. But, yeah, <laughs> that's okay. Thing. That's yeah, okay, yeah. Josiah. That's my job. <laughs> that's my job on the there podcast to be offensive and alienating. <laughs> I, I take up I take that role so everyone else so can everyone just, else can just can, you know. can be congenial. 
Well, awesome. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you um, like the podcast, you can find us on Facebook, Really True Fiction. If you're interested, you can send us an email, reallytruefiction at gmail.com. We love interacting with any uh, listeners. And um, you can subscribe on all main podcasting apps, uh, which will mean you get notified when there's a new show available. We try to release on Sundays. Well, this has been another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. My name is David Parker. And this is Josiah Martinowski. And uh, may the force be with you. And uh, also with you.